Well, I'm going to go ahead and light our candles this morning. Today's theme um, is peace. This being the fourth week of Advent, our theme is peace. And so um, as we light this fourth and then before the end of the service, we will light the fifth candle um, of Advent. And if you're um, from a more um, uh, high church background, you recognize these candles. If you're from the Baptist background or the non-denominational background, like uh, I am, you may not. Oh, nope. Wow. There you go. Just talking, you know. (laughs) I was about to say, you probably aren't familiar with, like me. All right. So here we are on Christmas Eve. (laughs) Uh, And if you're not that much into organized religion, you'll feel right at home here because we're not very religious nor very organized, um, as you can see. Guys, thank you. All right. That was good. I wish I'd planned that. Um, All right. So here we are on Christmas Eve, December 24th. December 25th is the day on which we celebrate the birth of Jesus Christ. But very few people, and again, you may experience some cognitive dissonance with this. This may freak you out a little bit, but very few people think that it's likely at all that Jesus was born anywhere near December 25th. Um, I know this creates a problem, but that that date was chosen as the Christ Mass, now the celebration of the birth of Jesus by the Roman church about 300 years after the death of Jesus Christ. Probably that date was chosen to compete with all the pagan celebrations um, of the winter solstice that happened around December 21st. Obviously, the meaning of Christmas is what all of our conversations this time of the year is about. What, is the, what does Christmas mean? And you've got everything from uh, alcohol companies Um, sports teams, and pastors telling you what they think Christmas means. Um, That's a big deal for us. But but we decided, as talking about it today, to recognize that that for us as Christians, what it means is essentially nothing unless it happened. That for us, the meaning of Christmas is irrelevant outside of the fact that this event happened. So let's look at what did happen and maybe estimate when, I promised you that would be part of our side quest that we'd be doing at the beginning of Luke, and then I'll tell you why that matters. So I'm going to start reading in Luke chapter 2. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was the governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to to give birth. She gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. In the same region, there were shepherds in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear And the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. 
When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child, and all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told to them. Now, those of you who uh, attend here or get to sit uh, here under our teaching at, here at South Spring and other places know that I like to think of myself as a rational person. Now, that doesn't mean I'm not a romantic. I am. I love stories. I am moved by epics. I am desperate for accounts of redemption. Um, these are what move me. As a romantic and a psychologist, I love the way that these stories found in Scripture from Genesis to Samuel to Luke to Revelation so beautifully represent the nature of mankind, the way we think, the way we feel, the way we act, the cosmic and historical and racial, and by that I mean human race, transcendent truths. These principles are found here. They are written all through it. However, confidence for me is found by reason. And for me, peace, peace is found in what is real. I want my faith that which I am persuaded by, to be anchored not merely in principles, but in cold, hard, historical fact. And if I'm going to say that the birth and life and death and resurrection of Jesus the Christ from Nazareth is necessary for my redemption, then it isn't sufficient for some tales along those lines to inspire literary appreciation in me. There needs to to have been and to be a Nazareth and a Jesus and a cross and a tomb If I am to find peace, it must first be in the stone of a first century manger. And yes, first century majors in Israel were made of stone. That's cognitive dissonance number two for you. We go visit them and see them, and it's just destroying to us when we see that for the first time. I want to see that, and I want that first century manger to be near a shepherd's field near some place called Bethlehem. Christianity is filled with wonder and mystery, but it's also a reasonable faith based in historical events. I love to know what is as well as what it means. This, what we just read about. This, what we sang about. What we're celebrating. This really happened. This is a real time and a real place. This event, the birth of Jesus Christ to Mary um, and with Joseph there happened in time and space. We'll unpack the details of Luke 2 over the next few, in a few weeks. Um, and moving through the rest of the book of Luke. But I want to look at a few quick aspects right now just to anchor this in reality so that you know this is not just some story. This is a historical event. This is modern Bethlehem. Oh, there's our stone manger. Go back real quick. That's, that should have been, I should have pointed to let them know. There's your first century stone manger. Deal with it. Okay, next. All right, this is, this is modern Bethlehem. You can visit it. It hasn't moved in thousands of years. We have the ancient, this is the ancient Byzantine church of the nativity. It's been there since around 330 AD. 300s parts of it have been there since 330 AD. By the way, it's one of the few churches not destroyed by the Muslims when they invaded because when they saw the mosaic of the three wise men on the wall of the church of the nativity, they thought the three wise men looked Muslim. So they didn't destroy it. True story. Then we have the Bethlehem grotto. This is If you go down into the nativity, down in the bottom, in a cave, they claim this is where Jesus was born. Okay, maybe, maybe not, but they are certainly not far from it. 
Inside of this is the traditional site of the birth of Jesus, identified around 330 A.D. This city is in the West Bank, and it surrounds, surrounded by an Israeli security wall to prevent people from crossing into Israeli areas with dangerous intentions. One of the original and most famous of Banksy pieces of art, the Bethlehem Banksy, is right here and can be seen. We drive right by it every time. Bethlehem is not, listen, Bethlehem is not Neverland. It's not Narnia. It's not Middle Earth or Mother Goose Land. It is a city in the West Bank of Israel. We can put a map up. I think we have, did we lose the screens for a second there? There we go. Um, you can look. There's the West Bank of Israel, all of Israel. We all know recently because it's become so popular, Gaza Strip. And up here, and there's Bethlehem and the West Bank, right there. Ladies and gentlemen, it's a real place. It's a real place. You can see the collage of some of the main sightings there, so a few of the different pictures there that are the next, I think the next slide. It's a lovely place, and it has been nice for a long time. Um, here's Beth what Bethlehem looked like in 1931. Another picture. Here's what Bethlehem looked like around 1898. Allegedly, this was Christmas Day, 1898, overlooking Bethlehem. This is the sketch of Bethlehem from 1698. It's, it's a city that's there, and it's been there, and it's been there from the time of Jesus. Three key people are mentioned in this passage, the passage before and building into this one. One is Herod the Great. We can see a statue of him. He's a real live person. We mentioned him and talked about him in chapter 1, the king of Judea from 37 B.C. to A.D. 4. Then we have Caesar Augustus. Caesar Augustus was not Aragorn the lost king or old King Cole or something like that. He was the first Roman emperor. He led the Romans from a republic to an empire after the assassination of his adoptive father, Julius. He ruled Rome from 31 BC until AD 14. And by the way, held several censuses. In fact, one of the historical accounts says um, that Caesar Augustus loved to count people. He really loved it. We honestly don't know a lot about how these were handled logistically. How long did it take in a population to, to count them and communicate that 2,000 years ago? I can't imagine. Did it take weeks, months, years? These were held so that when a nation under Roman control had to pay money to Rome, they were paying the total amount. And so they liked to count because they wanted that number to go up under Roman rule. We know that they for sure were triggered in 8 BC, 2 BC, and 6 AD, for example. We have Quirinius. Quirinius is not Governor Tarkin from the Death Star. He was a real person who lived about 51 B.C. to A.D. 21. He held significance in Rome starting at least in 12 B.C., and we have documentation of him being referred to a magistrate as early as 3 A.D., and maybe likely before. These are real people. Luke is intentionally anchoring the story of the birth of Jesus Christ on a historical timeline. We are the limited information we have. We can't quite pinpoint the year of Jesus's humble birth. It's a real bummer. We're close. Most likely, given all the crossover of these different people, when they ruled and when they did things, as late, not later than AD 1, and maybe as far back as 4 BC. And we've, if you've been coming the last few weeks, you've seen we've narrowed it to September, October, or February, March. So one more piece of information to solve our puzzle. The Greek word for field in Luke 2, 8 indicates agriculture, not just a, a random field like we would have in East Texas. We, we, they, maybe they were celebrating a jubilee, but we have no evidence they ever did. You would never want sheep in your field in the spring. 
You wouldn't want that. We're not eating your plants while they were still growing, but you did want them there in the fall after the harvest when the sheep helping mulch and fertilize the fields. Further, Tishri, which is the one of the two new years that the Hebrew people have. I know that's strange to us, but they have two new years. Um, this is one of them on the Jewish calendar. It is the start of Rosh Hashanah, meaning the head of the year, and the Feast of Trumpets. You can imagine the significance of this. Jesus was born on or about Tishri 1, if it was in the fall. His death at Passover would be bookended perfectly by his birth around the Feast of Trumpets. In fact, maybe the best argument against it is that it doesn't specifically list it, but I actually am now going forward with the theory that Jesus was probably born on Tishri 1. Now you go, well, then we should be able to know what day of the year Jesus was born on. We should, except for two things. One, we don't know exactly what year. And the Hebrew calendar is lunar, not merely solar like ours. So here we go. We have four options, actually five options maybe, but you ready? Think about your birth date. Here's my opinion. Here's my new opinion. Because by the way, the Hebrews keep such good track of their calendar. You can go back to BC. I've found a website that you can put in any year and it'll tell you when dates were all by the Julian calendar, right? So going from BC 4 to AD 1, Tishri 1 is either September 22nd, October 10th, September 29th, September 18th, or October 6th. Anybody's birthday have a one in five chance of coinciding with Jesus's, maybe? <laughs> the truth is, of course, we don't know. People have been trying to solve this riddle for a couple thousand years, almost. We don't know for sure, which is part of why celebrating on December 25th is totally fine. It's as good a date as any, since we don't know exactly when. It wasn't a big deal early on. It wasn't that big a deal. The big deal was, of course, Easter, the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus. If Jesus was just a baby born in a manger, that probably actually wasn't unique at that time, born and laid in a manger. Wasn't born in a manger, born and laid in a manger. So what are our other options? So I want to do this just real quick, especially for those who are doubting this time of the year, those who face serious doubts. Understand that, of course, doubts can be cast on any belief. Questions can be asked that are hard to answer and in some cases impossible for us. But one of the things I like to do when I'm thinking about these things in my own doubts is to ask the question, what are my other options? What are my other options for the book of Luke and Matthew and Mark and John? What are my other options for these accounts? What are my other options? Here's, here's the most common one, that some other guy, maybe Saul of Tarsus, invented it all. In this, in this example, I'm supposed to believe in an era with no fiction or almost no fiction, and what is there is so rudimentary as to be laughable, we have a brilliant fiction writer or a team of fiction writers who invented all of this. That's what I'm supposed to believe. Careful not to make, take each other's counts perfectly. Where they align, but they're not flawless, including their own genealogies of Jesus, but they come from various perspectives and various details. They anchor carefully in history, but invent everything else, including the genre of historical fiction. They invent Jesus and Mary and Joseph and Peter and James and John, and of course all the bit players, the angels, the shepherds, the magi, the priests and prophetesses, and yet they write them down in a vast array of Greek styles, Greek vocabulary, each tailored to a different audience. That would be a miracle bigger than angels showing up. I don't buy it. Why did they do it? Just so they could be martyred by the Romans? Is that Would they have a death wish? I'm skeptic, but I'm convinced this happened just like this. There really was Jesus Christ of Naz Jesus the Christ of Nazareth, who God made the plan to redeem his people with this gift, starting with a baby so he could experience life like the rest of us. 
That's an amazing picture, and it solves the issue of God's justice, that someone must pay for the sins of mankind, and God's mercy. He then provided the payment. It's a brilliant solution to the character of God, and then that offer can be poured out with grace on all of us. I can't wait to unpack the rest of the Gospel of Luke over the next season of my life with you guys. I hope you come back for it. We would love it. You've got a good taste a little bit if you're a guest here of who we are. And we like to laugh a lot, and we sing a lot, and, and uh, we like to greet each other, and we like to really dive into Scripture and study it. Um, and, and this is something that I want us to be able to experience together. So if you will, stand with me. We won't have our normal invitation. Normally is now when I would be inviting you to join with us as a dysfunctional family, if you would like to do that, and all the different things we talk about. Um, but today we're going to do something extra special here on Christmas Eve. Hope you will come back for that if you've never been here before. Instead, we're going to celebrate the Christ through a candle, as something as simple as a candle, yet it creates such a beautiful picture of all that Christ is doing in us and doing with us. His light. So I'm going to read this passage, and then we will share that and sing together, and then we will go. Luke 4, 16 to 21. And he, Jesus, came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him, and he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, quote, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He's come to set us free. And verse 20, and when he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendants and sat down, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. We celebrate today together that the scripture promising a coming Messiah to save us and set us free has been fulfilled and today in our hearing.